HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Heritage Radio Network Farm Report. Today we've got a very special guest, Marty Hill from Twin Springs Farms in Lineborough, Maryland. Hey, Marty. Hey, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Doing great. So for all our listeners, Marty's a bison uh, farmer, and why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of your land? Okay. We, um, uh, we started back at the, the farm in... Um, 1990, I believe it was 1996, and um, always wanted to you know, be involved with farming, but wanted to do something a little different, and started out back then with uh, roughly seven head of bison, which has over time grown to 127 at current, and um, started out with just a home farm of 140 acres, which has now grown to, we, we need to farm a lot of ground to provide our own for those animals, so we farm a little shy of 700 acres to support all that. And so bison are generally associated with uh, the Midwest, with like Wyoming. Is it, how, how, how do you deal with, with raising bison in Maryland? It's, it's a little different than out west because our, our area is a lot, a lot smaller, a little more rolling. Um, I guess the, the biggest difference is we, we have to do a lot more rotational grazing rather than just putting a, putting a herd out on a large piece of property, a large parcel. And, and also, too, we, like I was saying, where we, we grow crops of corn and oats and soybeans of our own, and um, we supplement so that they aren't just on hay and, and uh, grasses. That way uh, helps, helps keep things moving along since we don't have the vast spans of land they do out west. And so bison aren't native to the Maryland area, right? Needless not, to say? No. no, not necessarily. Okay, so what made you choose Maryland? Well, that's where I've been born and raised. And um, believe it or not, there, were, there are several other farms in the close proximity of us. And um, bison, I just, they're a really an interesting animal. And just thought, you know, niche farming is the is the way to go rather than just, you know, the mainstream beef or, or hog production or something of the sort. And so bison is highly under-consumed in the United States. Can you explain to me how um, how easy it is for you to get your product onto the consumer's plate? Well, we, um, <clears throat> for us, we, we have a market on the, uh, on the farm. We've taken uh, the corn, one of the old corn barns and turned that into a full-fledged market with, uh, you know, all the, just like Safeway, all the glass door freezers and, 
everything's available, all the different cuts. <clears throat> and then also too, we, you know, we we uh, try to work with the internet, and we, but we also too go to a lot of got to go to a lot of shows, a lot of festivals, and and get the word out that way. What kind of festivals? Well, we go to um, we go to a lot of wine festivals. They're a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, we also go to a lot of um, <clears throat> farmers type markets uh, that kind of bring our type of product as well as other producers of uh, you know more rural type locations into uh, city areas like we're in Annapolis and, and places like that. Um, <clears throat> and then the other the other festivals we go to are. Um, We've worked with some of the like Native American type festivals, kind of like powwows, which that's uh, that's that's pretty interesting, and it it really does go along with the bison. And there's sure. other other stuff like uh, the the what they call the fairy festival. There's that's local to us. That's pretty interesting to go to too. So, about how many pounds does a full grown bison weigh before they go to slaughter? Well, actually, uh, a bison it takes five years for a bison to reach maturity to full growth. Um, but we, you're able to butcher a bison right around two years, um, two years old. And our animals, when they go live weight, when they go to slaughter, is right around anywhere from 1,300 to 1,700 pounds, just depending depending on the animal. And do you use all the cuts? Like, how do you promote the use of off cuts? Well, we um, we yeah we actually utilize everything, even the organ meat. Um, starting with the organ meat. Um, there being in Lineborough, which is in Pennsylvania Dutch type country, that's that's a common common eaten uh, part of it, all the animals in the area. So that's that's not too hard to move along. Um, and then also too, all the uh, we we don't have as much as in beef production. You have a lot of trim uh, because you have more fat and the like to trim away. So we're able to utilize pretty much all of our ours in the, uh, the average cuts, your steaks, your your cubes, um, your roast, and that type of thing. And then what little bit we have is um, trim. We actually will take full animals and grind those for burger because we we don't an animal doesn't produce enough of the like number two grade material to grind into burger. That's why most people find I think bison burger is, is such such a better Better tasting and uh, I certainly do. Yeah, than, than beef. So tell me, why is it that when I go to a restaurant and I see a bison burger on the menu, it's so much more expensive than a beef burger? Well, first off, bison what bison aren't in his mass the mass production mode like like beef is. What they kill in a day in the United States um, for uh, beef is what it takes several months to kill in production for the bison. So it's uh, you know supply and demand is I guess step one and uh, and secondly uh, beef you can produce and get to market a lot quicker than two years whereas bison because of the growth the growth pattern you've got you've got the carry of that animal for two years so you've got you definitely have more expense but and also on top of that I just I'm a I'm a I guess I'm biased but I'm a firm believer that it's a better product so it should be worth a little bit more. For the uh, for the value you're getting out of that, I agree. I think it tastes better. Yes, definitely does. And it, I tell you, it, uh, bison you, you you never you never have a tough piece of bison unless you don't pay attention to cooking it. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, can you recommend some uh, one preparation and a wine pairing for like an off cut of your bison? I tell you, the um, uh, let's see, 
we, um, what I like to, to do at home when we have some guests over is um, we, we do um, one, one, of, one of three things. We either will do um, any one of our roast, we'll do a slow cook, and if, if uh, you go to our website or if you go on to National Bison Association or Eastern Bison, they have plenty of recipes there. But okay. we'll, do a, um, we'll do a slow roast, slow cooked roast with, uh, you know, all the, with the potatoes and the, the uh, different carrots and onions and whatnot. And that <clears throat> a red wine goes great with that. And it's, it's one of those kind of meals where you can kind of, you, you, you slice off and you go, but you can then kind of pick at it and continue to chat and have a good time after while you're eating. Cause I'm never one to just eat one plate. Um, but then also too, another good thing is the cubes. Cause you can do some really, really good, um, skewers and kebabs on the grill mm-hmm. and in that case too you can you can also I'm, I'm more of a beer drinker so you could always always add to that for the barbecue and um, the other thing too uh, we really um, like to like to do is the bison chili because it without mm-hmm. having that fat it just it, it has such a, a, a better flavor than the standard chili hmm. so tell me a little bit about some horror stories that you've had um, raising these buffalo, um, or, and um, Michelle tells me that you've been you've been gored by one. Yes, and and I have to be honest, that was just uh, that was my fault. Um, it's been five years now, but uh, we have a pasture that um, once cows calve, we will put them in, and um, I've, we used uh, all of our the way our farm got its name, Twin Springs is. We, we have all natural water sources of two springs that feed everything, and including all the waters for the animals. And we have one pasture that's set up with a watering area that's a little lower so the calves can water. And um, every now and then some roughhousing will happen, and a calf will get bumped in, and you, go, had to, you would have to go in and help it out. And I went to do that, but I made the mistake of getting in, and it was a cow that had been what I, we call a bottle calf. Um, so she was not scared of me, and I... She didn't run away, and I got too close, and yeah. she was protecting the young. She got me, and I tell you, they uh, they, they talk about being stampled, you know, stampeded or trampled by the uh, by an animal. Those horns are for a purpose, and they know how to use them if they need to. And she hooked my knee and my calf uh, leg, leg calf of my leg, and uh, sent me for a helicopter ride to the shock trauma. And uh, really, so this yeah, was yeah, near death, day, near death stint. Near death running with one of your bison. Exactly, it definitely was, but um, and it didn't scare you off from farming them. I just know which side of the fence to stay on more often now. That's all. <laughs> so, is it by nature an aggressive animal? Not necessarily. Um, they're actually very easy to work. Um, the biggest thing is taking your time. I still, you know, we we move them from pasture to pasture since we rotate through the different pastures with the different groups of uh, the animals. And um, it's basically just keeping them in front of you. Don't let them get behind you. And um, the only time they'll get aggressive is during when they have calves. The cows will get, but that's uh, that's that's any animal. A mother's going to protect her young, and and the bulls can get a little feisty. Once they reach five years, we usually um, the breed bulls we usually retire them because they uh, at five years they start feeling their oats pretty well and they get a little bossy and we. We've had a few, you know, snap some fence posts in here and whatnot, but haven't had to chase many around the countryside. Huh. So, 
So the bison is a highly social animal, right? Excuse me? The bison is a highly social animal, right? Uh, for, the, for the most part, very inquisitive. Oh, you know, when people were there visiting, they're always wanting to see who's at the fence. And um, anything new in a pasture, those animals are right up trying to figure, hey, who is this? What is this? What's it going to do? Interesting. Um, what about your farm, if anything, keeps you up at night? Uh, I tell you, the... the um, I guess the, the, one, the one concern I've always had is since bison are something that aren't the norm, especially for Maryland, in the evenings I've always, and we've had this happen, we've had some um, people take some potluck shots at some animals. So, like shooting them? Excuse me? Shooting them? Yes. Why? Um, I don't know. That's, uh, I guess, some people's human nature, but... That's, you know, that's that, crazy. That, that fear, yeah. Or somebody, since we're so close to some major arteries of you know, roadways, if somebody were to go through a fence, I'd hate to have to go chase 127 bison around Carroll County. So, oh my God, how close are you to a road? We're right against some some. Um, we're, we're very rural, but we have one main artery that comes right through the middle of the farm. Um, that uh, it's a it's a highly traveled uh, highly traveled road. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the maximum size for your operation. How big do you think this bison this bison farm can get? Well, this bison applied. ranch is it, it's ranch or a farm? Uh, we consider it still a farm because um we're not we're not just producing the bison, we're also uh you know, we're also uh, grain farmers. But um we've acquired uh the adjacent property which is another 168 acres. So we we really would like to see it grow to be at least double the herd size of what we are now, and we've been working with um, uh, with some of the government agencies who are helping us to kind of see what we can do to um, maximize on the smaller area which we have to work with here in the on the East Coast compared to out west. And um, looking looking at um, like the rotational grazing and and um, <clears throat> some um, high high use type areas for. Uh, for feeding, so that um, we don't ruin ruin the grass areas, which which can happen when you get that many animals and and can't keep them. If we have a drought or something, you can't keep them rotated around quick enough. Sure. Now, so while we're on the topic of government intervention, if there was one farm issue that you could write into law, what do you think that would be? One farm issue, you saying? Yeah. Um. Right now, I, I I'm not sure. I know I know one item that has always been of particular interest to people raising bison has been USDA inspection. And we USDA inspect our animals uh, when we do our, our, um, our butchering processes. But since it's not required, we then have to pay for that service. Whereas if you look at the other industries where it's required, other you know animals that are going through, then you don't have that expense. And some people in, in the bison industry are like, that's the way to go, which I think it is because it mandates everyone keeps everything safe, but yet there's others that would rather not have intervention. So that will always be a toss-up, I think, for quite some time till somebody finally leans one way or the other. So do you think that there's any way to popularize the bison more in America? I mean, what kind of steps can be taken? What kind of measures can be taken to increase the consumption of the average American per year of bison meat? Well, I think first we need to, the bison, the herds out there, the actual head count in the United States needs to grow. 
um, at a faster pace than what it has been, which we're, we're tickled with the pace it's been growing at because it, it steadily grows yearly. But the, um, we, need the, we need the supply in order to continue to push for, for more, um, more consumption. And I think also with having more out there, that'll, that'll make the price even more attractive. It's never going to be cheaper than beef. We're not out there to compete and try to play price wars. But um, we, need, we need to increase the volume that we can provide to the customer because uh, I know we've had several ch- uh, you know, restaurants that are more not necessarily national but local like chains. And the problem we have is if we were just to, to take on their accounts, it would wipe us out because they, they run specials on certain cuts, and uh, it's, it's a high volume. But that's a good thing, too, because it says people are very interested. Certainly. Who are some of these top buyers that you distribute your bison through? Well, right now um, we deal uh, with a lot of the local restaurants, both uh, I considered fine dining and some just local. We um, uh, Maggie's Restaurant in uh, Westminster uh, does a phenomenal business with the burgers and uh, Johansson's uh, rest- Restaurant, um, one of our local little coffee houses here um, called the Dutch Corner Restaurant, um, handles it, Salerno's in um, Eldersburg, uh, geez, and we we have several in D.C. We, we um, actually take the, the different um, country clubs in the area, which uh, has been pretty neat, and we're seeing a lot more, too, of the uh, caterers coming to us so that they can they purchase, and whether they're catering for whatever event, whether it be a wedding or, or a you know, political function in the, in the Washington area, it, it kind of adds a little flair to put bison on the menu. Mm-hmm. It does. It's sort of like a, a rich man's burger. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think I think bison meat tastes terrific. How would you compare the taste profile of bison meat to beef meat? I tell you, they're 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 very close. Bison has a little bit of a sweeter taste. I think the the biggest the biggest thing is um, in comparing to beef is the texture. Bison uh-huh. is just uh, it's such a such a much more naturally tender meat than um, than beef, and again I, I have to stress the only time you really see a difference in taste is if if you cook it too long and the and the the reason I'm not saying you have to be one of those people that likes your meat very rare it's just that uh, without having the fat content and all the other miscellaneous that the uh, commercially produced beef does bison cooks a lot quicker and a lot a lot more efficiently than beef does. Okay. Well, we're running out of time here, so we'd sure. like to thank you for taking the time to join us on the Farm Report. Well, I appreciate the, appreciate the opportunity. And I'm sure that we'll have you on many more times to come. Sounds great. Look forward to it. All right, Marty. Best of luck with your venture. Oh, thank you. Take care. And we'd like to thank Hearst Ranch for sponsoring our show. Hello, and welcome to the Heritage Radio Network. This is our second segment on the Farm Report today, and we have a very special pair of guests, John and Dorothy Prisky. And they farm Fountain Prairie Highland Beef in Wisconsin. John and Dorothy, how are you? Say hi to our listeners. We're doing great today. Thanks, Lorenzo. Hey, John. Hello, Lorenzo. So basically here at the Farm Report, we think of ourselves as keepers of the oral history of American farmers. So why don't you just give us an idea about the history of your land and tell us a little bit about how you became connected with it. Well, traditionally, our farm was a tall grass prairie. I'm talking about... uh, the 1850s before settlers came. Uh, it then went through a period of um, conventional row crop farming, and then um, we got our hands on it. 
and mm-hmm. we are now a grass-based farming system, and we've also restored a tall grass prairie and a wetland area. How did you restore them? Well, uh, we plugged some ditches, and we dug some uh, shallow ponds for the wetland area, and for the tall grass prairie, it was uh, an area that was planted in corn, but it never did real well there, and we... Uh, we planted uh, four different prairie grasses, warm season grasses, and about 20 different kinds of forbs. This was so that the uh, so that the, the cattle could graze on them. Well, no, actually, this is all devoted to uh, wildlife. Okay, so can the cattle graze in a different area. They graze on about 180 acres of what's called cool season grasses. So you guys are something like a, a wildlife preserve and a farm, slash farm. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the name of our farm is Fountain Prairie, and that's also the name of our, our township in our county. And uh, the reason that Fountain Prairie got its name was because every section within the township had water, either a spring, a creek, or a pond, and it historically was the tall grass prairie. We're right at the lower edges of the glaciated part, the Wisconsin Glacier. Okay. Uh, we're within uh, 30 miles of the end of the, the glacier, which then is called, referred to uh, as the driftless area. And, and so, so in restoring uh, the land to all grass and the warm season grass, the tall grass prairie, it symbolizes that sense of place, that uh, fountain prairie is... Uh, not only uh, something you can uh, come and visit and, and uh, you know, utilize all your senses, your taste, your smell, your, your sight, and it, we get a wonderful feeling of uh, what it would have been like a long time ago before, uh, say, industrial farming sort of started mining the land. And we're, we're restoring it now, utilizing highland cattle, similar to what might have been here years ago with the buffalo. So the only thing we remove from the land is the offsprings of the cattle, mm-hmm. and the cattle just keep uh, recycling the nutrients. And by having a grass-based farming system, it collects water like a sponge, and it, it, it builds the soil. We're not destroying it and, and taking it away and, and sending it to places that we don't know who's consuming a product, but we know who's consuming the offsprings of our highland beef cows. Gotcha. So do you feel like this sense of place, like this equivalent of what, <clears throat> wine enthusiasts might refer to as terroir. Do you think oh, this comes? Absolutely. Do you think this comes through in the taste of the beef? Oh, definitely. Yes. Explain uh, to me how that happens. Well, the heritage Highland breed takes a long time to mature. Uh, we probably are at thirty months when we harvest the offsprings of the cows, the what we call the steers, uh, the uh, castrated males, and. Uh, they are allowed to mature similar to a grape, say, in a certain region. Sure. And then uh, we finish them uh, tell, so that when they're, they're ready to go, just like that grape, to, to make a good wine, that we cannot harvest them until that certain time. And then once we harvest the, the beef and butcher it and it's hanging, we age it then for 21 days. So not only do we have the flavor of a mature, physiologically mature animal, Mm-hmm. But then we have the aging process that works naturally where it breaks down the, the tissue and starts to tenderize the beef. And then 
the mo- as the moisture leaves it, it intensifies the flavor of that beef. And the Scottish Highland beef is known for its inner muscle marbling mm-hmm. because we have the cattle with the long, shaggy hair, two, two layers of hair, mm-hmm. and a huge set of horns, which is why they didn't fit the in, in industrial model, and they're slower growing, which sure. turns out to be the, the finest taste in beef you can find because it's just a true, uh, a true beef uh, flavor. And putting them back on the land and restoring the land with grass uh, it just is a perfect combination for us. So is the rough weather that, that the the Highland cattle evolved in and and produced their coats as a result of any similar to the to the climate in your area? Well, in certain does it get as ru- year, does it, it get as rough seems as it that way? Uh-huh. Um, uh, John mentioned the double layer of hair, so they're quite comfortable when it's very cold outside. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're more comfortable in January than they are in August, shall we say? Okay. And how does the fact that you're grass-feeding them impact the taste? What kind of taste profiles do these, do these cattle have? And how, what distinguishes them from other breeds in terms of taste? I think a lot of the responses we get from people is they've never tasted beef that tasted so much like beef. It's just a very good, intense beef flavor. It's not and a that rangy, comes from grass-feeding? Yes. Okay. It's not a rangy uh, flavor. Uh, it, it's just a, a, a real good beef flavor. Maybe Dorothy has a better opinion of it. She does most of the cooking around here. <laughs> Dorothy, yeah. what do you think? What do you what what kind of taste profiles do the Highlands have that other cows don't? Or that other cattle don't? Oh, uh, well, another term used to describe it is buttery flavor. Beefy buttery flavor. It's very rich tasting meat. Okay. Um, now, I read on your site that Highland cattle are light grazers. What exactly does light grazing mean, and what does it mean for the land they graze on? You said that they sort of act as a a natural land preserver. Explain to me a little bit about how that process works. Well, the Highland cattle have a tougher tongue and a tougher throat. They tend to be more of a browser than a true grazer. So if there's any brush... Uh, that needs to be cleared up, these guys will tackle the brush and they'll knock it down, they'll rake it with their horns and eat the leaves and the tender parts. And and they'll go after uh, some of the vegetation that uh, invasives that we have, like wild uh, parsnips right now that are becoming more and more a problem. They they just go right to town and eat it right up. They they are really good at restoration uh, with... uh, with the land, and there, there's been a study done here in Wisconsin on restoring uh, oak savannas utilizing Highland beef uh-huh. because now, of that browsing aspect. I see. So they sort of act in the same way as a fish would clean the, the sides of a tank. A certain species of fish cleans the sides of a tank. The Highland cattle clean the land that they're using. Well, that's true, especially in the, the, the rougher, brushier parts and, and of the farm and the, the lower riparian areas. Uh, when it's drier, we can get them down into the, the brush there. But I think the most important thing is that we do use uh, managed intensive grazing. So they're, they're being switched from paddock to paddock mm-hmm. so that uh, they always have new, fresh grass in front of them. It disperses the manure, so they're... they're uh, fertilizing as they go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh and how do they deal with pests do they help keep pests 
down? Yeah, the long hair protects their eyes from flies, mm-hmm. and it helps them from frost in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, so tell me, are you promoting? One of, the, one of the things we believe in here, here at Heritage is using the whole animal. Are you promoting the offcuts, and can you suggest some preparations, and how much use have you found for offcuts? Are you pretty much getting rid of the whole animal? Yes, we are getting rid of the whole animal. Um, we've had pretty good success marketing uh, pretty much head to tail. Uh, we market to a large number of restaurants who aren't afraid to use some of those offcuts, and even our customers at the farmer's market have been buying them more frequently. It's an education process, uh-huh. and we do offer um, suggestions for cooking some things like the hanger steak or the tri-tip or the oxtail or tongue, for example. What's your favorite offcut, Dorothy? Uh, my favorite offcut... Dorothy, I... don't tell them or then it'll become so popular we won't have any... <laughs> no, I have to tell them, John. It's the cheeks. The cheeks? And how do you prepare those? I, I do a really slow braise with some uh, herbs and, you know, a little bit of red wine never hurts. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what do you think is the five and ten year plan of five, five to ten year plan for your farm? I'm going to let John answer that one. Well, I, I think that Fountain Prairie has grown to a point right now where we have become uh, very well known and have a great reputation in our area. And we're looking at what we call the, uh, the, the star system, which means it has five points. It means all we want to do is get better at improving our soil, because then we can improve the grass that's on the soil, uh-huh. which will and help us improve the taste imp- of the improve the nutrients that are going into the beef, uh-huh. and uh, that'll improve the herd health, and that'll also, working with the genetics within the breed, so that's kind of our... Through selective our, breeding? Yeah, yep. We, we've now identified some, some uh, genetics within the breed that are doing extremely well on, on forage, and uh, also the amount of intermuscle marbling varies within the genetic makeup of the Highland beef. So we've now identified those traits, and we're actively pursuing uh, bringing in more of those genetics. And I I think at this time that Dorothy and I are pretty well set uh, for the the sires and the dams to make this all happen. Now it's just a matter of waiting and seeing how our ideas uh, pan out. So wait, so you pick members from within your your breed, or you pick members from within... Your, your, your herd, and then you 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 breed those, right? Exactly. And how have you gotten attuned to being able to tell exactly what traits, just by looking at a cow, would make it a strong candidate for selective breeding? Well, Dorothy and I have been do- direct marketing the meat now for over seven years. We butcher beef every week. Every week, I handle cattle uh, as they're being uh, slaughtered. Uh-huh. Every week we handle the meat at, that was taken in three weeks prior. So by weighing the animals, we get a good idea of their rate of gain and how they're doing at different stages of their life. And then we, get to, we, we are so hands-on, we get to see the beef as soon as it's hung on the rail, and we get to look at the cover, we get to look at the, 
basically the inside of the beef. And, and we know, and we you know, know what the, our and, animals. We know who the the parents were of of a particular animal. So we were able to tell uh, which bull, for example, is doing a better job for us. Sure, sure. And the Scottish Highland uh, Association has one of the oldest uh, record-keeping systems for the pedigrees. So we can track back most of our registered animals way back into Scotland. It's pretty amazing how far back the, the pedigrees go. Wow. Well, I've been in the Scottish Highlands, and these, these cattle match, match that terrain and match that feel so, so well. Right, right. Is it is it really damp and and hu- and sort of humid where you are? Oh, we're humid in the summer. Uh, in August, we get ninety degree weather, ninety percent humidity for a short time, and that to me is the toughest, one of the toughest times of the year. I, I, Highland just they will shed a lot of hair, but it still seems to be hard on them, and it's hard on other cattle as well. Mm-hmm. But because it'd be like you wearing a pretty warm coat in the middle of summer. Uh, so we provide shade areas. I know that's a, uh, not something that the, the true grazers uh, prefer because once you put them under trees, they tend to defecate there and, and put the manure in the wrong spot. Uh, but we just feel like, hey, they, they've got to get under shade. So we've designed our farm so that the cattle from wherever they are can get back into shade when it gets to be the, the time, what I call 90 90 uh, degrees with 90% humidity. Yep. And I wouldn't think our weather overall is that much different from what you experience in New York State. Right, 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 right. I would say probably you're probably about right. Um, and so you, so you try to sort of help them, you, you sort of help protect them from the environment, but not, not with a heavy hand. And how do you protect them from predators? What, what kind of interaction with other wildlife do your animals have? Well, we, we, we usually don't have a challenge uh, with wildlife. The, the Highland, one of the uh, benefits of Highland cattle is they're good mothers. And what that means is that if there is a, a four-legged creature around, they do they have protect. horns and they know how to use them. Sure. And uh, our dog in particular, who, who loves to go out with us, he doesn't like, he's not a cow dog. And he learned his lesson right away that you don't mess with a Highland cow. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. Have you he got ever learned up your... in the air and uh, did a triple lux, I call it, and came back down so fast he went, he didn't even know what happened, and I just stood there and watched. And so now he just doesn't. He chooses. So you, to... you said you gave him a nine point six on his landing. Oh, definitely. I just stood there. I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> and so, most generally, if there is a problem with uh, an animal. This whole herd will go after it. They, so it's a familial think. species. It's a familial Pardon? breed. Yes, yes. Okay, so it's, okay. Now, and, it, and it's kind of interesting, too, Lorenzo, you know, if you go out there and uh, you're doing something with one calf and it happens to make some noise, uh, you look up, you've got a dozen cows coming over to see what you're doing. Huh. Even though, uh, obviously, it's only one cow's baby, everyone's concerned. Okay. And so we're sort of running out of time here, but I want to ask you one more question. If you could write one farm issue into law, what would it be? How do you think that, what do you think about the government's interaction with your farm? And how would you like for the government to improve your farming situation? 
Hello? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, well, I, initially, uh, my, my first uh, gut reaction to that question is that uh, what we're seeing here in the Madison region of Wisconsin is that uh, development is taking over farmland, and uh, maybe it's slowed down a little bit with the current economic conditions, but farmland is becoming very, very expensive and very, very scarce. And so I think that uh, Dorothy and I are pursuing uh, conservation development rights on our land to protect it from development. We think that's the number one issue, that there needs to be a way for people like Dorothy and I or who are getting uh, close to retirement age to allow young people to be able to come in and express their desires to farm. I think and every young over person that who land. wants to farm should have an opportunity to farm. Uh-huh. And so they, we need to provide a place for them. And one of the best ways is with the conservation development easements. It, it allows farmers like Dorothy and I who are hoping to transition out, and we have a very successful business with young people coming in so that we would, we would actually sell the rights uh, of our, our farm so it wouldn't be developed. That would give us our retirement income, so to speak, because farmers always live uh, poor and die rich. Sure. This would give us an opportunity to get some retirement money and allow those young people to come in and at a lower per acre price or to take it over, and uh, the land would always be available for farming. Hmm. Dorothy, do you have uh, any other thoughts? Well, it doesn't relate necessarily to uh, new legislation, uh, but some things that the government does do that we participate in are some conservation programs, uh, namely the Conservation Reserve Program and the Conservation Stewardship Program, which um, basically uh, pay us for some of the management things that are environmentally friendly. Right. The CSP program, the Conservation uh, Stewardship Program, was the first green program by the USDA that rewards uh, good farming practices uh, for what you've done, not what you might do. And I think that we're probably one of the few farms in our entire uh, area, because most of our area is uh, heavy corn and soybeans. And we're kind of an island of grass and a sea of industrial farming. And uh, that's a green program for providing water quality, air quality, soil quality, and providing uh, room for the wildlife, all wildlife, whether it's uh, uh, birds or whatever might be passing through. So you guys sort of think of yourselves as stewards of the land and the stewards of this breed? Absolutely. Oh, definitely. We, we, if we were going to write a book, I think the title of uh, Dorothy and my, and my book would be The Good Farmer's Approach to Land Stewardship and Food Pr- Production because it goes hand-in-hand. Hand. Uh, I know that may sound like Wendell Berry there, but I think that if we, we should listen to <laughs> Wendell Berry, uh, I, I think that they go hand-in-hand, hand and that's what makes uh, uh, that sense of place. Uh, that uh, You've got to have good stewardship of the land and, uh, and good food production. You can taste the ethics of the farmer in the meat, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, Our we soul, here at Heritage... Right there, the soul of the farm is within the, every product we sell. Well, we here at Heritage strongly endorse your product, and we want to commend you for the hard work that you're doing to to maintain 
the ethical and the ethical standards that you have and the standards of quality that you have for your beef. And we look forward to having you on many more times. Well, thank you well, very thank much, you. Lord. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank Her- Heritage Food for all the great work it does. We okay. sure appreciate it out here on the farm. And thanks to our sponsors, the Hearst Ranch, for helping us make this prog- program possible.